0: How's your day been? Uh, not very productive. <laughs> Fair enough. It's <That's> very honest. <sighs> hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J. And in today's episode, I speak with Vasily Zukhanov. Longtime Android developer, tech blogger, YouTuber, and course creator. We talk about freelancing, tech blogging, working with startups, course creation, his wild but plausible conspiracy theory that could potentially result in the end of Android as we know it, and much, much more. Now, on to the show. Yeah. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we get into my conversation with Vasily. I just wanted to say a huge thanks to everyone who's already left the show a five-star review. You guys are Awesome. And to those who haven't yet left a review, please do so. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps me out massively. Secondly, if you aren't yet aware, there is now a Coffee Encoding Slack. A bunch of people have joined in the last couple of weeks. There's been some interesting conversations and a number of people have also used it to DM me personally about their development careers. And I'm more than happy to help however I can. So if you want to join the community, you can do so at coffeeencodingpod.com slash slack. And finally, you can find the show notes for this episode at coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash episode 13. Now onto the show. So the first question before we get into course creation and, you know, take my chance and all that kind of stuff or take your chance, I should say, before we get into all of that, can you just give us the origin story of how you got into mobile development and particularly just up to when you became a freelancer and something that I haven't heard yet is also, why did you go in the direction of Android and not iOS? Uh,
1: So I got into mobile development completely by chance. Uh, I have a degree in applied physics. And I worked uh, for several years at a major semiconductor company. I built chips. It was very interesting, but at some point I got burned out. And I decided to take a vacation of a couple of months and maybe just try to get back to the same company at a more senior position or maybe just go to competitors. And basically, I never got back uh, because during these months, a friend approached me and told me like, you're not doing anything with your life right now. Yes, correct. I thought, yeah, right. So I have this idea and uh, we discussed it. And I started developing application, which uh, then became what's known as I do care. It's not known because it's not on the Play Store anymore. But for me, it's very big uh, milestone. It was just amazing experience because when you work at these major semiconductors companies, you are working on projects that take several years to complete. You know, it's as close as this a horrible and, ho- and waterfall methodology that all agile coaches uh, told you about. So that's that's the process. I mean, it's very strict design, architecture, and then development for several years. And here, like, I could uh, just, you know, sit in front of my computer and actually build something, and it's very addictive. So I never got back to semiconductors and physics stuff. So I decided to become a, a developer. And why Android and not iOS? It's just completely by chance. We wanted to start with one platform, and when I was at the university, there was one course about Android development. So it's just kind of, I didn't do anything there, but I kind of knew how to start with the Android. And also I was a big uh, Google fanboy. So, you know, for me, like all, the, all this openness and open source, it sounded so great after being um, for several years in this very closed ecosystem.
0: So with the I do care, was that like a, a side project or was that like a startup? How far did that go? Uh,
1: it was our startup, it went relatively far. Well, like the application was on Play Store, and we have backend. I mean, it still works. I, I use I use this app every time I want to try some technology. So it's very handy to have you know a code base from five more years ago, and I can see like you know all these questions. So who is the stupid who wrote this code? So <laughs> I can I can kind of travel back and see how I saw things back then. Uh, so we built the prototype, we had backend website, we had mobile application on and Android, quite complex application actually not not much UI, but you know like offline work. Um, for someone who just started Android development, uh, today I understand that it was quite impressive um, achievement. I spent several months on this application eventually. And then after we built it, it died because we, we were engineers and then we reached the point when okay, we have something, we have prototype, now we need users. Someone needs to go out and tell the world about I do care and try to actually do something. And uh, none of us did that. So it just kind of died, died out very naturally as many other projects because we didn't have anyone who would take a business initiative, you know, bring people, tell people about that.
0: So on a side tangent, how, I guess, how disappointed were you, if at all, because as as developers, right, I feel like that's the old story where we build stuff because it's cool, and then when we get to the end of it, we're like, well, we don't really know what to do next. So how, how disappointed were you that it didn't go forward, or were you like, I got to build something cool, and now what's next? Uh, massive disappointment. I
1: worked with uh, two friends. One of them was kind of uh, not really very involved, but one of them actually built the be- the backend and the website. So me and my friend we both carried this sense of it's not it's not just disappointment; it's actually a sense of guilt because I do care was uh, we envisioned it as a social network for people who care about environment. So it basically allowed you to kind of you know you go to the forest, you go in the nature, and you see some place which is dirty, which needs cleaning. It allowed you to kind of you know, mark this point on the map, write a comment and we added some initial gamification, you would got some reputation if you go clean that or you report that. So it was very big plan. We actually wanted it to succeed, but yeah we are both have very deep guilt feelings and we each six months we get back to it and we discuss that, you know, when we get back to developing I do care. And uh, I think at some point we will, because uh, you can't carry this sense of guilt for your
0: entire life. It's easier,
1: at some point, it's easier to just build this thing and, you know, ship it.
0: Yeah, definitely. At least try try again and see what happens. Then at least you can say that you gave it a really good shot, right? Exactly. But before we try again, uh, at least me, I need
1: to become some kind of a businessman. And that's something that I tried to cultivate over the past uh Let's say four years, three years.
0: So before, before we get to becoming a businessman. So I do care. Was that your first Android project work? That was the start, right? And then so after, after that, did you go into like um traditional job, quote unquote, or did you go straight into freelancing? My first job was freelancing.
1: I, I, a friend approached me when I built this application. Another friend approached me and they had a very cool idea. It was a startup. And they asked me like, would you build this application for us? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I will, I can do that. And of course, like I have this thing that I constantly fall on very difficult things. Like it's I I am a magnet for for trouble. (laughs) So I told them, yeah, sure. Like go and gave them some quote. And then I, as a junior developer, set up, set out to, to build basically an application that connected over Bluetooth to a wearable device. And in real time, acquired data, processed it, and uh, presented with some kind of analytics and statistics to the users. So, like, not not something that you like take as your first project. It's not not
0: straightforward at all,
1: no. 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 Well, back then, luckily, it wasn't. I think it wasn't uh, BLE. It wasn't Bluetooth Low Energy. So the API was absolutely f-ed up, but not as as it is today. Uh, so it, again, it took like two or three months. I built this thing. And after I finished I realized that I don't want to be a freelancer. I wanted a team. I really like team environment. So then then I went to search for a conventional job.
0: Okay. So that gig was that a I'll do it for you because you're my friend or was it an equity thing or did you get paid to do that? I got paid to do that. It wasn't a equity thing but I definitely got paid to do that. So did you set the price of what that project was going to cost? Yeah. Okay. And so then I guess from your smile, like how far it was are,
1: uh, underpriced?
0: Yeah. How, how much did you lowball it? Um Well, I don't want to
1: discuss numbers specifically, but I mean, I mean, let's say it was like at least uh,
0: two times I could charge twice or three times or, or three times more. Yeah. Okay. So then you did that project and then you went and got a traditional job. And uh, I guess at what point did your freelance career start? Cause you do freelance work now, right? Yeah. So when did you transition out of? your traditional job to freelance and kind of what I'm getting at is what made you make, because you said you didn't like freelance work, right? You like a team and then you went to do a traditional job. So what made you make that transition to freelance work after that?
1: Yeah, I, I worked on a couple of uh, jobs, very interesting jobs. But again, I want to build stuff myself. It's very clear to me that, you know, like being a businessman, being a startup uh, founder is something that I just, I can't escape. I tried to. I try to tell myself, it's not your thing. You try it like twice, three times. You like spend enormous amounts of money. My friends, they kind of like maybe respect my courage, but they also think that I'm crazy. So I like, you know, like they say, so you could work like at Amazon, like any company in the world on any, like on your terms, but instead you just go out and waste your time and money on that. But I cannot help it. I try to like get back to work, you know, conventional job. And after a year, I'm like, out of here and I started yet another project which also failed and after approximately eight months when I ran out of money I kind of had to think like do I get back into like full-time job or something and another friend approached me and told me like you know we build this startup and we will need mobile application so like would you like to to build it and I said yeah let's go so that's kind of by accident I uh, ended back in freelancing And from there, I worked on a couple of projects and it kind of, you know, a friend brings a project and a past client uh, calls, uh, asks for something.
0: And so far it works. So really now, or up until now, it sounds like you're getting work from word of mouth. Um, I think this year I mostly get, got
1: work. I don't do much work because, you know, like at least half of my time is dedicated to courses now. Wow. Uh, and new edge course, you will probably want to ask me specifically about courses, but
0: it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. But uh, this year, I think most of my clients actually came from my blog. All right. So then that leads me nicely into my next question, which was, it seems like you've had a blog for quite a while, right? From the very beginning. Okay. And at the start, it was just a hobby thing.
1: It wasn't even a hobby. I, I was building I do care, And I felt something wrong. You know, I followed Google tutorials. So I had like, well, it sounds crazy today, but I really had like, uh, as a junior developer, I had full offline mode. I had sync adapter, content provider, Authenticator. I don't know for how long do you develop for
0: Android? Uh, since 2012. So you know what sync adapter? I uh, know most of what you just said. And as soon as you said Google tutorials, it's just like, I can see where this is going. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I adapted fragments, you know, like before I knew any better because back then they were, they were still horrible. Like all these text, you know, I just threw them together. And at some point, I just started to feel something is not right. You know, like I have one huge activity and I started searching for better ways to organize my code. And back then, back then you would write like Android architecture. You would get, you know, just the first three pages on Google, you will just get references to this stack, Android stack, you know, like Linux and then like whatever drivers, you know, Android OS. Uh, so it was kind of interesting um, stuff. And I started exploring that. And that's when I found, um, about, found out about MVC and it was a really cool concept. I adapted it. And then after a couple of months more working with MVC, I found, you know, um, the articles that I worked with were relatively old. These were probably the very first resources written about model view something in Android. And by the time I, I got into Android, you know, there was an additional body of knowledge accumulated in the community. So I kind of connected several things together and improved and that's how like what we call today model view controller was born. And when I worked on that, ah, okay. I had a course in the university where we had to present something about Android, you know, like some topic, technical topic. And I went that, there and presented like, you know, like I work with MVC and I found it here and I improved it in this way. And that's really cool guys. And everybody like just looked at me like, what the f- is that? Like we just, we just want to write applications. Why do you come with all this? you know, blog diagrams and stuff. But the lecturer there, he was very uh, experienced, like a guy. He was like kind of startup guy. He was less of a developer. Very, very good at like connecting technical and business stuff. And he told me like, you know, just write a blog post about that and see what the community says. It will allow you kind of to articulate your thoughts better. And also, you know, maybe maybe there's some value in what you propose. So that's how I wrote my first three or four blog posts. And then I forgot about that for about a year.
0: That's super interesting. So kind of what I'm interested in, I guess, getting to is, so you did it for quite a while since the beginning, right? And then I feel like I heard you say on Mitch's podcast that at some point it kind of turned into something a bit more than I just write these articles because it helps me retain knowledge and, you know, people might find it interesting. So at what point did you realize that, oh, this is becoming something a bit more than that?
1: After a year... Uh, basically, when I quit my first Android job, proper Android job, uh, I kind of just, I was curious, like, what's going on with these articles that I wrote about a year ago. So I logged into the console and into WordPress, and then I saw that there are comments. So not, not only someone read this stuff, but also bothered to actually write something. And of course, none of that was on the blog because uh, I moderate comments, so uh, people didn't actually see these comments going up. But after I saw the comments, I'm like, okay, I need to know how many people actually read that. So I uh, integrated Google Analytics and then I saw that it's about like 40 or 50 people a day. And I'm like, wow, someone actually, somehow Google picked this thing up and people actually go and read it. So I started to treat it a little bit more serious, but it really became serious once I realized that it takes a lot of my personal time. So then, then I kind of had to think about, you know, like, do I... Treat it as like, you know, some side project or something, in which case it just takes too much time. I cannot afford that. Or I actually try to do something very serious about it. And initially it wasn't about money. Like the first iteration of seriousness of take your chance was just about me going and producing more content, making it kind of sharing more of my knowledge. And by that, by that time I had a little bit more uh, understanding of Android and I worked on some very cool and unique stuff. So I already had something to share. So that was when it became a little bit more serious.
0: So I have a couple of questions.
1: Before that, I want to ask you. Sure. Your podcast is relatively new, right? Yes. So you do it for a couple of months probably now.
0: Uh, yeah. I think since probably March. Yeah.
1: And is it the only content that you put out
0: there? Yes. Okay.
1: Great. And what, what prompted you to start?
0: So I have been, I've been, so basically I've been thinking about doing a podcast for probably a year and a half to two years before i started it and the reason that i wanted to do it was because the kind of conversations that i've been lucky enough to have with people on the show that's like the content that i like to consume and i never found a like i found a bunch of tech podcasts and some of them are really good but there was always like this, some of them are super nerdy. So, you know, you have to be in a certain mindset. Otherwise it's just, you're, you're not really listening. It's just background noise. And then there wasn't any that was just like, you know, kind of, I don't know if you listen to like Entrepreneur on Fire or stuff like that, where they just basically have conversations with people that run an online business or or whatever. Right. And it's just, it's interesting because it's stuff that I wouldn't Google to go and look for, but when you hear it, so that, that was basically what prompted me to start it. And then what actually got me to start it was basically one day i was just like i'm just gonna start messaging people on linkedin and see who wants to be on the show and as soon as somebody said yes then it's like well now i can't really not go and do it and then once i'd recorded the first episode it's like well now i have no choice i can't not put it out and then i wanted to make sure it was weekly because i didn't want to have an excuse to not do it and so now it's just like well that's like if I, i feel like if i stop doing it i'll stop doing it And I really enjoy doing it. So now the fact that it's weekly just prompts me to keep going.
1: Yeah, that's a great strategy. But so your first podcast guest you got just by... Basically mailing uh, messaging them out of the blue. Yeah. Like cold messaging, like, would you like to be on the podcast? And people say like, yeah,
0: sure. At the start, it was, it was really strange because I'm, I was asking people, do you want to be on a show that I don't really know what the show's about? I don't really yeah. know what I'm going to ask you. And you don't really know who I am, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you, you have no idea who I am, except yeah. for on my LinkedIn, you can see that I do app development and you do app development. So I probably messaged like 10 people and I think probably out of 10 maybe four of them responded and only one of them was straight away like yes I'll do it but now it's a lot easier because now I can be like do you want to be on the show you can go and have a look you can have a listen I feel like from like from up to now which is only probably 12 episodes it's gotten much better and the production's gotten better so at least you have an idea of what you're getting into yeah whereas at at the start I remember one of the first people that I emailed was or that I messaged on LinkedIn was Mitch and Mitch was just he replied and it was like a one-word answer it was like yes I'll do it but you have to get to 10 episodes and I was like all right cool so then that was my goal was i need to get to 10 episodes and then if i can get mitch on the podcast then at least now i can go to other people and be like well mitch did the podcast so it gives a bit of credibility to it and hopefully he did it because he thought it would be a good experience so it's like this rolling thing yeah
1: that's definitely like uh, what i would say like if um, you know, people approach with uh, all kinds of um, ideas business-wise or technical wise and the first question you ask like like show me something because everybody talks you know, talk is cheap oh, 100% yeah so it's really, it's really cool that you managed to get started this way
0: because I would expect you to just, you know, approach one of your buddies and just like come, on, come over. I did think about doing that because I know a bunch of people that do development and some of them are like really good friends of mine and they'd be like, yes, straight away. But it was also kind of, I felt like that was, that was too easy. I, I wanted to have the proper experience of I'm interviewing a stranger. You felt just cheating yeah it feels like cheating right because then it's really easy to get started and it's like cool we'll have we'll have cool conversations and i'm sure i'll do that in the future but i feel like i want the credibility that i'm not just interviewing my friends and because otherwise, otherwise it's too easy like the conversation goes really easy it's not uncomfortable for either person and i already know the answers because we're, we're buddies so yeah it's super
1: impressive that you managed to start this way and you continue with that life. really really great
0: um i'm glad you think so i'm glad you think so so
1: what 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 were we talking about
0: so the question that i had which was about your blog just out of interest how comes you write and still to this day unless i'm wrong you write out calls on your blog and you don't do like you didn't decide oh i'm going to go with medium or i'm going to go with one of the other platforms because because in terms of uh, content creation i've written articles before and the easiest thing for me to do is go to medium because i get a better reach than i would on my blog because nobody's reading my website right which is fine that's not the goal of it but how comes you don't do that or you don't do both and you just stick with your blog
1: one of the articles I wrote, I think yeah maybe it was the most provocative of all my articles about Kotlin 3 years ago. Uh, someone came over and were like you should definitely share this art- post this article to Medium. And back then Medium just uh, I don't know if they just started but they weren't as big as today. So I kind of checked out the problem, the platform and actually cross-posted several of my posts there. But I didn't continue with it because I didn't see much value. I do get a lot of engagement on Medium, much more than I would have on my own blog. It's much easier to start on Medium, much easier to blog, definitely. But by that point, like, you know, I already had a pretty decent traffic on my own blog. And I actually started to realize the importance of having your own place online. It's like Medium is great, Um uh, you don't, you don't, didn't ask that, but I guess that will be your next question. Like my recommendation to beginners,
0: how to start. Kind of, yeah. I'm interested in your experience, but I was going to say, if you were starting today, would you go with medium or would you still go with your own?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's, if you want to start blogging if and you don't know if you will continue with it, you don't know if you'd like it or something, writing one, two, three posts on medium is totally reasonable because it's very, very easy to start. It's really, uh, and you will get a lot more views because, you know, when I wrote my blog, it's like, you know, I spent several days writing this post and then it's basically like maybe if I wouldn't forget about my blog, I will just shut it down <laughs> because I didn't really expect anyone to read that at some point. Or maybe I did, but you know, like I didn't, I didn't think about it as anything at all. It was just like, you know, the lecturer told me, like, write it down for the community. And I wrote it down and maybe posted links here and there. But that's all. So uh, starting on Medium is much easier. So you will get engagement. If you write anything decent, you will get some engagement. Maybe you'll get likes. And it kind of prompts you to write more, gives you the initial feedback. But once you decide that you want your blog, you should absolutely have your own home online it's not medium it can be wordpress it can be even some static uh, site generator it can be anything but it should be your own platform that you control where you put stuff out there and if you if you're a decent writer if you if you really like that they will come that's like what google does they will come if you if you share good content and you are consistent with it i I've, n- I've never been consistent with my blog except for like 6 months in 2020 that i just kind of promised on twitter that if i don't write an article every week i will do some kind of tutorial that i don't want to do <laughs> so so it's for 6 months i released one uh, post uh, every weekend was very tough for me so doing podcast every every week is like If you you can pull that off, it's like amazing.
0: I mean, my goal is to see how long I can keep it going. And I feel like I can keep it going for a while. But really, it's just as long as I enjoy it. And if I stop enjoying it, then that will probably be the last episode. But so far, it's super enjoyable. So my question after that was going to be, so you've got your blog and then you started doing courses because if you're going to take your blog serious, unless I've got this wrong, but from what I got is if you were going to take your blog seriously, it takes a lot of time. And then doing courses was kind of a way to supplement the income of that time spent on the blog. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah. yeah, I even wrote about that. There's an article article on the blog when I kind of outline what I'm going to do. I didn't know about courses back then, but I just wrote that uh, I will need to create some premium content to offset the costs that, you know, I kind of opportunity costs mainly because back then the blog didn't Worth much to host and stuff. Today it's like uh, sizable uh, spend expenditure, but back then it was like still very small, and I didn't use uh, um, much technology, uh, third-party paid plugins, and stuff. Um, so I just wrote that I will need to have. I, I didn't want to pop to put any uh, ads on my blog. First of all, because I don't like that. And second, I think that even today, I'm not at the level of traffic that will generate any considerable income from ads. So I kind of wrote, I need to create something to offset the cost. And it was like the most, one of the stupidest things I like wrote in my entire life. The the, the stupidest probably thing that I wrote in on my blog, for sure. The naivety of that. I thought, I thought I can go like, you know, spend a week or two, create something and and then it will give me some kind of, uh, income to offset the cost. And then the first, you know, I, I researched what can I create. And then I discovered Udemy. I discovered online education. And by that time I had a couple of videos on my YouTube channel. Again, it's like abandoned and very boring, but I already kind of, I thought, okay, I can, I can do that. Probably two weeks I can do course and Dagger is my, like, by that time, except for a uh, model view controller, Dagger was like my biggest expertise. So I can probably do a course about Dagger because I already had by that point a video lecture about Dagger on YouTube, a week or two. So basically two months later, after like crazy amount of work, you know, like um, I took a month off, I was working for a client back then and I told them like I will be months off, I will be working on some stuff and after a month I discovered that I'm not even halfway through. And so after two months of... Basically equivalent of two months of full-time job, I produced two and a half hours of content. And in the first month, uh, when I posted it on Udemy, in the first month, I remember... And I posted links everywhere. I basically spammed, you know, everyone whom I knew and my mailing list. And so I had like, I don't know, 100, 200 people maybe there on the mailing list. So I emailed them. I posted links everywhere. And in the first months of, after two months of full time effort, I earned like 300 bucks, 350 bucks. And it was like, me, what did <laughs> what did I can do right now? It was like, I mean, I live in Israel. It's very uh, in Tel Aviv. It's very uh, like expensive place. I know that maybe someone who will hear your past podcast, you know, for someone three hundred bucks making after two months of work, maybe it's it's not a lot, but it's like you know you say okay, I can see where, that it goes somewhere at least. For me, it was like the worst decision uh, money wise I've made my entire life. I just spent two months of full time job on that. But I discovered that I like it. I mean, I don't like the produced courses. I still hate it. That's why I don't do it very much. I basically burn out. At the end of each course, I'm like done, completely done. But I really like them. It gives me the opportunity to dig very deep into concepts. And I also like the dynamics of uh, after that. You know, students take that. People, developers, they like it. They share their success stories. They ask provocative questions. They point out my mistakes. All these dynamics, I really like that. So I got addicted to that. And eventually the money, you know, the money. After a year and a
0: half, it became something that, you know, I'm not ashamed of anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, that's interesting. So, so I have two questions on that. The first one is, what part of the course creation process do you think, or essentially like what part of that gives you the burnout at the end? What's the hardest part for you or is it the whole thing?
1: The production The recording itself. It's like, uh, maybe I will not talk about my experience uh, in details because I don't want to, you know, discourage people and then like, uh, I'm not a weenie person in general, but I would like to, to kind of like give um, a bit of advice because lately I see this. I get a feeling that many people, they want to get into content production. Everyone wants to have a YouTube channel and everyone wants to have that and, that. and many people just think about courses, you know, they see the success of others. And I'm not a successful course creator by any stretch of the imagination. Like there are people who build multi-million businesses on online education. So but
0: also to that point, it's a scale, right? Because to me, you are a successful course creator to me, who's created zero courses and never sold anything.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like they look at me, for example, and they see like someone successful, but if they look at people, other people are, who are much more successful than me, then it's like stratospheric success. And I think, oh, I will go and do that as well. So that's what's my mistake. I saw that it's easy. It's indeed uh, true that content creation can give you something, but it's much more probable that you will spend weeks or even months of your life doing YouTube videos and it will go nowhere. So, like, you need to be very consciously aware why you do that and what you want to invest. That's why I'm I'm really, like, amazed by what you did. You just told yourself, okay, I want to have a podcast, I want to produce it once a week, I will do what it takes and I don't expect like any immediate return, you know. I'm not expecting like to become rich or something. But I get a sense that many people today kind of try to make this quick buck or something or at least quick reputation for themselves because that's... Ego is totally fine and I'm driven by ego as well. I try to fight that but my ego is like one of the main uh, drivers behind everything I do. So treating your ego and wanting to become great is totally valid motivation as long as you motivate, <laughs> understand what you need to do, how long it will take, and what cost you will incur yourself. So now you can ask about, about, about my success. I just wanted, I just wanted to preface everything with this disclaimer because I really think that we need to be very honest. I'm like for honesty. So you need to be honest about stuff.
0: No, I I agree with you a hundred, a hundred percent on honesty. And I think a lot of people look at content creation whichever form that comes in as a way to it's maybe not a quick way but eventually it's gonna see you're gonna become like rich enough to make a living or you're gonna become a millionaire and it's like it doesn't always end that way and also i think people overlook what it takes to actually push it to become that but my question in terms of like your core success would be i guess two there's two parts so something you said that i find kind of interesting is you said that you know to to you Compared to other people that are, you know, they're making millions of courses that might not be successful. So my question would be because it's obviously it's not the quality of the course and all that kind of stuff. So what is it that you think differentiates you from being that millionaire course creator and i'll preface that by saying that so for example with the podcast right i put the podcast out and i send one message on all the different social media channels i have to say hey it's there and then that's it and because i don't i don't really enjoy social media so i don't want to spend the time you know replying to people so they find me and tweeting and retweeting and and all this kind of stuff right but i know but i know if i do that then if my podcast is growing by you know 10 listeners a week it could be growing by a thousand listeners a week but for me i don't want to do that and i'm happy to just take the 10 listeners in a week and see where it goes so for you is that a similar similar thing which would separate your courses from earning you 10x what they earn you now or is it something else
1: yeah, before I answer your question, if I might, maybe I'm I'm wrong, but from my experience, I don't think that if you engage on social media, it would give your podcast any more visitors. Because you know, like it's it's what what I did. You know, I had some kind of social platform, not very big. You know, I'm not Jake Ward or something, but you know, people kind of knew me by then, and I tried to leverage that for something, and really like. <laughs> it's funny that some people on Reddit uh, developers, when I post my stuff there, they will like, you know, there are always this hater who comes in and says like, you just want our vi- clicks or something. Like, and that's mis- misunderstanding because once you reach initially, you know, you can get your first ten hundred 100, well, maybe even 1000 visitors from posting on social media. But if you produce really good and useful content, your main driver is Google. Or YouTube. I mean, if you pro- if you have successful YouTube channel, okay. But I don't consider YouTube social media. I consider th- this actual media media platform. So creating successful content business is a startup on by its own. It's a, it's a project. It's a company. So I don't think you miss on opportunities by not being on social media business. I mean, content creation opportunities. Because if your podcast is good and you are consistent with it, you know it's what Google does. It connects people who seek, who look for content, or for have interest in specific areas, to content which is interesting. So it's like just a matter of time before you know Google picks up your stuff. And your question was like, what uh, What separates me from being multi-million course creator? And there are two answers to that. One, I don't like doing courses. I mean, uh, the process itself, not, as as I told you, I really like going deep. It allows me like to dig, to take everything I know, bring in every additional knowledge that I don't have, process it and spill it out in the way that will be um, understandable to other people. And this requires like extreme level of understanding. So I really like that. I'm, I really like digging deep into stuff, but I don't like the process. So that's first part. And the second part is self-discipline. I don't have much of it. So, you know, like, I'm, that's like my, my current project. You know, I'm very into self-improvement uh, and all stuff and self-discipline and the ability to concentrate on, on work that I maybe don't want to do is something that I work on constantly. I, I can share that. It's not a secret. I've had my courses on Udemy and um, in 2019, I, I released just one course. In 2020, I released, I haven't released any courses, any new courses. Uh, And I hopefully by, by the end of this year, because I already started working with uh, new members on my platform, on my side. So I kind of changed the gears here. I, I get external help. You, you say that you would like to discuss that, but kind of jump ahead of myself. Uh, I, I cheated a bit. Okay. So I have this problem with self-discipline and I don't like making courses. So even though, you know, I know that there are 10,000 plus uh, students on Udemy who kind of wait for my content and they write me like, we are waiting like, could you like make a course on this topic or that topic or maybe like, whatever you do I will buy it, just like, we are waiting for your course I still couldn't do that because it's difficult and it's discipline and it's like, always not the right time for it, but now I have a membership program, so people actually pay me by month and when they pay me by month, I cannot uh, procrastinate anymore, that's unacceptable so I know that I know that my commitment to other people, it's just bigger than my uh, self-discipline problems and my procrastination. It has always been like that. It's very difficult for me to do something for myself or to motivate myself. But once I've got some external motivation, I'm like a beast.
0: Okay, so it's kind of like a hack, right? Because you've you've basically taken, Definitely. yeah, what what you know will motivate you, and you've put it in place where now you can't let people down, or you wouldn't let people down. Yeah, I mean, I mean,
1: I work on myself, but I know that you know it's a years long project to develop self discipline. So I kind of started using hacks. So I wrote on Twitter, right? You know, if I don't blog every week for the next six six months, I will do this tutorial about navigation component. And then for six months, every week, whatever, whatever the situation was, I was producing one article. And some, you know, for me, one article is on average about two full working days. So for six months, I spent, let's say, like 30% of my effective time, billable time, writing articles. It was a huge investment and I'm not sure I will do that in the future but for me it was a success you know you need to give yourself set yourself goals and achieve them and in this case and in this case the same i i just hacked around my own limitation
0: yeah i don't think there's anything wrong with hacks like it's kind of similar to what i did to this podcast where i could easily just change it to a monthly podcast or i could change it to no whenever i get a guest i'll do it but I I know what I'm like, and so this makes me accountable. Exactly. And, I, and I and I also know like there's like this OCD part where if I'm doing a weekly podcast, I can't have a gap for a week because if I have a gap for a week, that's the end of the podcast. So it's like I have to keep doing it. So I, yeah, I don't think there's anything with hacks, especially when you're aware that that's why you're doing it. Because like now you're accountable to people, but your brain might not know the difference of that, and so then it might help with your discipline problem because your brain might just take that as oh I'm disciplined now, or it might teach you discipline in like a forceful way. I don't I, I don't know. I don't know. I guess we'll we'll come. Back to it and see.
1: I wouldn't expect that much of, a, of an impact, but at the very least, I know that uh, it will prompt me to produce consistently and more because, you know, like I cannot, for example, they pay me like some amount of money per month and I really respect that. Uh, it's not trivial for me. So I just, I won't, I won't be able to sleep if I know that I'm not standing up to my own expectations. And that's kind of what you did, but you can be accountable to yourself. And for me, unfortunately for me at this point, it's still a problem. You know, I can set a goal. And if this goal doesn't involve any external stakeholders, I can still it up royally, but the moment there's anyone else in the picture it's like no chance
0: is going down all right well then that leads nicely into what i wanted to discuss which is the membership program so can you give listeners kind of what is it how does it work because all i know is that you have one and that's as much as i wanted to know because i wanted to find out from you so like can you give us some information about that
1: uh i'm very bad at marketing so i'll just
0: Say that as yeah. You don't have to sell it exactly. I'm like that's something again that I, that I need to work about on selling. I think the good part about that is almost I would say exclusively everyone listening is developers, so we're not familiar with sales at all. So you can just say it and we get it.
1: Okay. So the membership program, it goes like this. At this point, uh, my members just get all my courses, access to all my current courses. There are five of them. Uh, One about architecture, dependency injection, unit testing, multi-threading, and one general not related to Android about solid principles. The problem though, I mean, it's a huge value. Like someone can enroll for let's say one or two months of a program and finish all these courses. So it will be even cheaper than on Udemy. That's why I, I set this price. I wanted to make sure that you know if someone just Interested in the courses? Let's say you've got a problem. You you got a new job and there's Dagger there. You know, legacy code base uses Dagger. You haven't seen dependency injection in your life. You need to get up to speed quickly. You know to understand what it does. And so you know you pay me some amount of money. You go one month. You're I mean, it's less than one month if you really need that. So that's the first part. That's the current state of the membership program. You just get access to all my courses. The future state of membership programs, that something that I want to develop is community. I will continue to add courses. I will continue to add content. But I fully expect that at some point, the value of being in the community of these developers who choose to, uh, to enroll in this membership program will be larger than anything that I can possibly do myself. So if you take, well, thousand people at this point sounds like, a, like, absolutely like amazing number. But let's say several years from now, it's 1,000 developers in the community. So you take 1,000 professional motivated developers, self-selected for that specific community, and a small portion of them contribute something, you get huge value. If you get a huge body of knowledge, it's something that I really wanted to, to find on Reddit, for example. I've been very active on Reddit for a couple of years, and I wanted to find it there, Until I realized that it's just impossible because it might sound harsh and something, but either you are a client or you are a product and on social medias you are basically a product so uh, if you like this community takes a lot of effort and time for me to run it you know uh, develop courses build this website and stuff and uh, in the future it will take even more time so I, char- I charge for that but the people who are in this community they are clients and i know that i am in charge of that community for the better and for the worse right all my biases all my all my version but that's kind of the deal that people who decide to enroll take On Reddit and uh, on other social media, you will always, I I felt at some point that I will always be subject to rules of other people, rules which are constantly changing, which are not really clear. And there is also a lot of noise because like for example on Reddit, there are many great developers, there are many people who contribute to to the discussion and there are very many people who just like, you know, create, not very many, but enough of them to kind of create enough noise to, to make me at least not wanting to contribute anymore. And I told myself like, that's not the, f- the type of the community that I want to be. And I looked for another one and there was none.
0: So. So, so your, your kind of goal is to create that community for you and all your audience, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, people who follow me, who consume my content, well, on Udemy, it's kind of like general public, right? Because on Udemy, I don't have much power. They market my courses. They do everything. So, you know, whoever needs to learn something goes on Udemy. But people who actually enroll in my program, currently, it's like founding members. We have several tens of them right now. Uh, These are all my uh, people who follow my blog or already took my courses or know me from somewhere. And that's why, like, I'm very stressed out about creating some new content. I already created new content. I've just released my new course. Well, I haven't released it publicly yet, but I already released it to the, to the founding members. So I just released my new course about dependency injection and dagger. So they have something to do for the coming months or two, but my goal in two months to create new content to
0: make it worthwhile for them. So
1: currently I work for
0: them. All right. That, that sounds like a good way to go about it. And I don't think a thousand in a couple of years is totally unreasonable either. I feel like that, that could be done. Well, I will take it. Yeah. Yeah. Take it <laughs> it. yeah.
1: You won't hear me complaining if I get to, to, to this number, right? But currently, like, I would, I would be really happy. Like, if, if I would have like 200 members. Because again, these are not like, it's not like, you know, some general forum where you've got 10,000 people and it still feels like it's half dead. It's it's like if I have 100 people there, these are like self-selected people. These are people who chose to be there. And these are people who are kind of maybe not think like me, but at least my way of thinking and my way of expressing myself does not offend them. So they're much more straightforward and much more to the point than average
0: population yeah i think that makes sense they came for a specific reason right because they could just go to reddit or they could just go to some other forum and they chose to come there so or they just
1: could uh, just continue consuming my courses on udemy because i i intend to put like whatever fits on udemy I, i intend to continue putting it out there there's no reason not to do that at this point so they kind of want a little bit more of an engagement. And I thought that they look for the community. I mean, I think that Android developers want a community right now. And it's very really hard to find some. I definitely got frustrated with all the communities I tried to to be active in for one reason or another. So for me, it was like, just build your own and see what's going on.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I think I tried for a little while to find kind of a community or a forum that was... I don't like uh, how do I explain it it was kind of like I I guess what I was looking for wasn't what I found and what I found was people that were like you know hey can you build my idea or hey can you teach me this really basic thing that I could just google I haven't at least yet found a community where like me and you could have this conversation but on chat and other people could join in and it's interesting and it's not just primarily focused on can you help me solve this one problem because I didn't want to go and google it or can you do something for me for free because I'm here so you know, build me app. so yeah i think if people have if you have a place to go that they can feel part of the community and i guess all feel like they're in the same position as each other as well or at like varying levels but you know i know where you've been so i can kind of help you then that that sounds like a nice place to be
1: yeah that's my that's my goal i know it, it will take a lot of work to get there but i'm at this point i i see this as my next startup as my current startup uh, It's as my only startup that succeeded for the past five years. So like. That is a good length of
0: time for a startup. Yeah. It's time for it to fly. Yeah. Totally. Totally. (laughs) Awesome. So I've got a last couple of questions, which are questions that I ask everybody.
1: I'm sorry. I forgot something very, very important. It's my, it's totally conspiracy theory, right? It's my, it's my, it's my opinion. It's not backed up by any official information, but. I fully expect uh, the coming one year or two to be very very difficult on Android developers. I predicted that three years ago, uh, when they introduced Kotlin into Android development, I couldn't understand why they do that. And when I don't understand why something is done, I dig. That's That's what I do. I just go deep. So I went very deep and I made some research. And based on that research, I predicted that Google will try to either change Android development completely or even replace Android with Fuchsia in the coming years, because due to this uh, lawsuit with Oracle. And to make this prediction a little bit more conspiracy theory and a little bit more uh, theory, I followed scientific method. You know, like scientific method, um, I'm a physicist in my <laughs> education. So scientific method says that you need a theory that explains what happens right now, the observations that we know about right now, but... Really, the the test of a theory is uh, when you it can predict future um, observations, future findings. So I made several uh, f- several predictions. I totally expected most of them not to come true because it would be like too accurate at that point. But actually, many of them came true. And the main one, one of the main ones that came true was Jetpack Compose. So three years ago, when Compose was, wasn't even on the map, Kotlin was just released. I say that, and, and Flutter was very new. And one of the things that I also try to understand is why Google promotes these two frameworks concurrently. And back then, everyone said like, you know, Flutter is for cross-platform development, Android native for native. And I thought, no, guys, Flutter is going to compete with with Android development. They will, they will try to steal Android developers from ecosystem. Native developers will want to do Flutter at some point. And today it's very clear that it's happening, right? Most Android developers, if they don't learn Flutter already, they at least look at it. At the very least, keep an eye on it. Uh, So I kind of predicted that Google will try to capitalize on their investment into Kotlin by making Flutter use Kotlin. And that's exactly what Jetpack Compose is. So when Jetpack Compose uh, came out, I told, like, okay, guys, now now it's really serious theory because, like, this big prediction out of the blue came true. And everybody, of course, said, no, Flutter is cross-platform framework. Jetpack Compose is just reactive way to write... um, native Android applications and I told them, mark my word, Jetpack Compose is going to be cross-platform framework. And just about months ago, JetBrains announced that they are looking for developers to work on Compose to bring Compose to desktop. So I totally expect that Google behind the scenes works on bringing Compose to Fushia. So if Fushia launches, Applications that use Compose as UI framework will definitely be able to run that. So uh, I think that Android developers today are in very tough position, very tough position, because on the one hand, we are kind of still, after three years, in kind of a middle of uh, migration to Kotlin. It's still not ma- as mature as Java. I think at this point, it's probably about 50% in, I, I would estimate. And on the other hand, we have Flutter. And we have Kotlin multi-platform coming. So Android developers are not just developer businesses as well. We are all in the very tough spot of making the right decision for the future tech stack. So are you going to invest like months of your life learning Flutter while you don't know what will happen with it? And other, other hand, will you risk to like ignore Flutter while it definitely has like the huge momentum in the ecosystem? And one of the, one of the goals with with this community is to kind of provide a platform for an open and hot discussion of this topic. And I, I currently have a lot of information about that legal from, I mean, I kind of read everything and, and aggregated all this data. So I'm going to share that. That's another, you know, it's courses. It's a community and also. If I'm right and we will face really tough times in the coming, let's say, two years, we will be there together. By that time, hopefully there will already be some established community and we will kind of discuss and be there together because, well, (laughs) I don't expect much honest and usable information
0: coming out from Google At this point. All right. So I guess I have one question on that, which is in your theory, what does the next two years of Android development or future or Flutter or however you think it's like, what does the next two years look like? In October... Supreme Court of the United States is set to to start hearing uh,
1: Google and Oracle arguments. I don't know to predict how long it will take, because I thought that this will happen in 2018. So it's kind of got delayed. It's not got really delayed, but these processes they take time, and then due to COVID, they delayed it for another half year. So no one knows how long will it take, but one guy whom I really trust, who kind of was spot on about this lawsuit for the entire time, he says that it will probably take several months. So it will be relatively quick to all these other developments. If Oracle wins, things will get very messy very quickly because then they will go to, to basically discuss damages. This will take another year or two until you know they settle. But then if Oracle wins, it's really clear that Oracle is going to get billions of dollars and maybe they will also get a share in Android ecosystem. So for Google, it becomes strategic. To to migrate everyone off Android unless they reach some kind of a deal with Oracle by that point. So if Oracle wins, uh, follow this lawsuit and you know on Twitter I I constantly share any new information about it that I find. If Oracle wins, we're like things will get really quickly really bad for us. If Google wins, I'm not sure what will happen. I thought initially when I wrote that post and when I made my research, I thought that they will just shut Fuchsia down, shut Flutter down, and just keep rolling with Android because it's the right thing to do. You know, migrating this ecosystem its billions of dollar of lost value for the ecosystem, but it's also hundreds of millions of lost value for Google. So if they don't have to do that, they will probably not want to do that. But at this point, seeing the, you know, all the investment in Flutter... And following the developments of Fuchsia, I'm not sure. Maybe they will decide to switch gears and replace Android anyways. Due to, I don't know, you know, there are like many reasons to do that. But uh, in this case, things will get more interesting and I can't predict anything about that. However, in either case, I think in the coming year, developers and businesses will need to make a choice. Either migrate to Kotlin multi-platform or migrate to Flutter. You don't have to migrate in the coming years, I mean, in the coming year in 2029, but at least, at least I think that the ecosystem uh, players will need to make this choice, which one they want, which road they want to go. I suspect that projects who never started migration to Kotlin might be way better off in the long term than the ones who started. Because if you start a migration to Kotlin, especially if you already migrated to Kotlin, Let's say in the past two or three years, even if Flutter is the best choice going forward and your project, you can kind of refactor to Flutter because it's a question. The biggest question, okay, the biggest question is what Facebook will do because Google can't, no, no one can launch any new mobile platform if Facebook apps are not there. And as far as I know, Facebook has tens of millions of lines of Java code in their Android apps. I don't know if they started migration to Kotlin, even if they did, it will take years. So Google, if they want to launch Fuchsia, they will need to provide a way to run Android apps on Fuchsia. In my mind, there's no question about that. Maybe it will be some kind of a crippled experience you know, maybe it will be slow or something, but you just cannot launch new mobile platform without Facebook apps. So that's a good point. Facebook here kind of, you know, not everything is dependent upon Google. That's a good point. But why I say, um, I think projects who never started migration to Kotlin might be better off because now you need to choose Kotlin multi-platform or, um, Flutter and you're kind of free to make either of these choices, right? But if you already migrated to Kotlin in the past two years, uh, like it will be a very difficult conversation with management. See, see, guys, we spent two years, like depending on the size of the project, of course, but let's say we spent a year migrating our application to Kotlin and we promised you that it will make us more productive. It will make our code more safe. It will make our users more happier. Like it will be better. But you know what? Now we need to consider this completely different framework. So we need to start the migration to Flutter again. This will be a very difficult conversation. So in some sense, I suspect that projects who kind of delayed this decision point might be a little bit or better off, but I'm not sure about that. You know, it all depends on how it will play out. Maybe, you know, Flutter will be shut down in half a year, even though at this point, I don't think it's possible. But let's say FushStay will not happen and everybody will be happy with happy with Kotlin and this fear of mine will be just, you know, kind of conspiracy that never came true. I will take. I will take that, by the way. I, I don't. I don't want to be right in this specific case because it, first of all, means that years of my experience worth nothing now. I will need to relearn everything. And even though, even though I'm kind of in the business of online education now, so for me it's a big opportunity. But I don't. I just don't like wasting my time doing the same thing in different uh, technology. I would like to see Android
0: being developed I would like to see APIs improved I mean it is interesting because obviously we don't know and I think it seems potentially like future and Flutter if if what you are saying is right is maybe google's kind of backup plan if we end up having to do something then it's already in place we have some developers you know it's not like this whole new thing overnight but one one question that i had which probably is not necessarily conspiratorial but because you mentioned facebook and i know some of their apps are react native so i just wanted to get kind of your opinion which is probably actually totally side tangent but i'm going to ask anyways is like flutter versus react native and what are your thoughts on that First of all, as far as I know, none of Facebook uh, major apps are
1: in React Native. They have some smaller apps in React Native and they have parts of their uh, bigger apps written in React Native, but I don't think any of their major apps are in React Native. I think
0: maybe the new Facebook gaming The one that just launched, I think that's React. I think, but maybe, maybe I'll find, I'll Google it afterwards. Um,
1: I would need to see, but uh, first of all, I don't have any close friends on Facebook. So everything I know about the internals of Facebook is just social media and reading uh, around. So maybe I'm I'm just speaking you know, uh, complete nonsense right now. Today, in Israel, where I live, React Native is much more popular than Flutter. You basically go to LinkedIn, everyone looks for React Native. And I think React Native is much more stable technology, much more... It's my, it's more mature, and so if I would need to develop cross platform solution today, like to get it out quickly and working, I would probably go with React Native and not Flutter. Long term, however, it's a question because uh, question and risk because uh, imagine for a moment that Google migrates to Fuchsia, will React Native support Fuchsia? Like, will they allow these kind of extensions on that platform and what will it take and what will, so it's kind of, you know, there are so many variables that we don't know about and, and Google doesn't, they don't tell us anything about that. They keep everything a secret for obvious reasons because for, for them, it's billions or maybe even tens of billions at stake. So. They don't count us. They spend enough money on public relationships. So most Android developers will be happy, especially the new ones who haven't been around for a couple of years to see all this uh, new tech deprecated, new tech deprecated. So React Native is a big question. It's it's really a big question. And in general, my opinion has always been that if we want any cross-platform solution to succeed, any at all. It must be native, at least on one platform. So Flutter actually fits this purpose. If Google indeed migrates to Fuchsia, Flutter fits this bill very good because it will be native on Fuchsia and it can also run on iOS. So that will be great. If Fuchsia doesn't happen, Kotlin multiplatform might fit this bill. And today people kind of very skeptical about Kotlin Multiplatform because it's in very early stage still and it requires you to write two UIs. But guess what? Compose is coming and if you can't run Compose applications on iOS, Forget everything I said. Like no, Nothing of what, I, of what I say can't. I put pretty much like everything on the fact that you will be able to run Compose applications in Kotlin Multiplatform on iOS without writing iOS UI. And by the way, you can do that today. There is this company called um, Ice Rock Development. They're Russians. And they went into uh, Kotlin Multiplatform very early. And at this point, they have already developed an entire stack of libraries. And one of them, I don't remember what's the name, But it's kind of composed, so you kind of can take their UI framework and write Kotlin multi-platform without rewriting UI on two platforms, though I don't know anything about the stability or usability of this library. If the option is there, that means that it could only get better, right? So It must get better. And JetBrains are involved. So unlike Google, I lost all my, you know, I've been Google fanboy, but I got disappointed and lost all my faith in Google. But unlike Google, I really respect what JetBrains do. And they're in legal agreements with Google, so there is kind of, you know, they need to take at least part of Google's bullshit with them. Just the fact that they're involved in this effort kind of gives me more hope about the future. Than say Flutter, but I'm not decided yet. That's 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 something that I want to work on with my community. I want to decide even for myself which technology I'm going to bet on because I don't. I'm not going to learn Kotlin, multiplatform, and Flutter. So I need to bet on one of them. And then when I, once I bet on one of them, I can start digging into. It and you know, there are no courses on dependency injection, multi threading, unit testing on either of these platforms. So it's a huge opportunity for me and from for other educators like Mitch.
0: All right. So unless unless you have more conspiracies i have two questions left and if you think of more conspiracies feel free to interrupt me (laughs) so the first question is just one that i ask everybody because i always think it's interesting is what machine do you use to work from or like what's your daily workstation Uh, my main machine is windows desktop Uh, my laptop is mac then i guess my final question is another one which i like to ask everybody and i think it's interesting asking people that teach courses as well which is what do you think separates an okay developer from a great developer Hmm.
1: i knew that you're going to ask that and i still don't have any good answer i don't I, i it's a very big question i mean if i will try to ask it to answer it we will be here for another hour i never figured that by myself I have some kind of instinctive feeling about good developers and great developers. Sometimes it's like very, it's amazing. I can I can speak to the developer like for fifteen minutes or something, or even just you know follow someone on social media, and then very quickly I, I I kind of pick up who is like a great developer and and doing good job. So I have kind of instinctive feeling about that, but I never managed to put it in practice in more formal form. What I can tell you is that I've read once an article where someone tried to kind of summarize the traits of good software developer. And it's like one of these bullshit articles that you read all the time. Five traits, like, but it was recommended actually by someone whom I respected. I don't remember who was that, but I mean, I got it from some legit, legit source and I gave it a read and it was actually very good. I remember I read it and like, yes, yes, that's important. Yes, that's, that's right. Let me find this article. I hope I find it. And then I will send you just the link and you can post it because it's really like a big question and it's very difficult to answer. One thing I can tell you for sure, in my experience, uh, one of the things that you want to have in good developers is loyalty. So except for all this technical stuff and stuff, uh, loyalty is super important. And loyalty comes in many forms. So, you know, like developers who prioritize the company, the product, whatever it is that they do over their own, let's say, benefits. And I'm not talking about pulling all-nighters and stuff. You know? So I'm not uh, s- telling, uh, say, uh, talking about this kind of loyalty. I'm talking about kind of when you make decisions, when you write code, when you choose lib- libraries, when you, when you decide uh, whether to go look for another workplace. Do you take into account your employer? Uh, do you account for the fact that they have interest? Do you understand their interest? Do you take that into account? That kind of loyalty. Because I constantly find that even, um, you know, I work with startups, uh, mainly. Yeah, I have here and there clients whom you would consider being big businesses, like not huge business, not Facebook, not, not stuff like that, of course. But, you know, like
0: uh, more 10,000.
1: Yeah, I mean, 10 plus millions of dollars, businesses, you know, like hundreds of people sometimes on the staff, but not more than that. Uh, but most, most of my work is like startup, anywhere from three to, let's say, 20, 25 people, staff members. And I constantly find these developers who don't know much. They're not technically very good. You know, they're like maybe very junior developers, like having one or two years of experience. And they bear all the weight of these startups. And I actually find, uh, like, for two clients, I actually found these kind of developers. You know, they don't have much money, they bootstrap, they put their own money in, they, they need some, some kind of a good developer to just start. And I find found some guy in Belarus or Ukraine, you know, works for a couple of bucks an hour and has no, cre- no, no credentials, no one, has no experience. And I kind of, you know, talk to them and I tell them, look, I think this guy will do the job. One of the most important qualities I, I look for is being loyal. Loyal and also have, you know, when they screw up, do they feel bad about themselves? Like there are people who they screw up and they're like, okay, I screwed up. Happens. Shit happens. And that's all right. That's not immoral. That's totally fine. And I envy these people because I would like to be more like that. But very good developers whom you can count on when they screw up, you see that it's a problem. It's like yourself. You know, you, you, you told yourself, I will do a podcast every week. And you don't have any external uh, accountability. No one, you don't, you didn't promise anyone that you will do that, right? You have, you have your own uh, accountability. And if you will fail, you will feel very bad about yourself. So I kind of imagine that you are a good developer. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> oh, it's, it's really a very important trade. When, when you feel bad, when you do something not good and you feel bad about yourself, it means that you will be loyal employee. You will, you will kind of try to do a good work. And that's, in many cases, trying to do a good work is much more important than any other piece of knowledge that you might have. Because knowledge you can learn. I think that
0: article that I told you about, I think it goes a little bit deeper into this. Okay. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Send it to me afterwards and I'll definitely stick in the show notes. So then I guess my final, final question is where would you like people to find you online? Where can I direct them to if they want to check out your membership? How can they do that? All that good stuff. Okay, membership.
1: Well, if, if if it's someone who follows me already, like you are more than welcome. For new members, I would wait for another <laughs> bit of time. You know, speaking about engineers building stuff and not business people, I built this platform and I was about to launch it and I was going to integrate all this payment system and then I realized that I can't take credit cards. I can only take PayPal. Just, you know, it's legal. It's legal issue because I live in Israel and all the major gateways, they don't work with businesses in Israel. And so, and so developer like, because business people, like a good business person, uh, they will do kind of, you know, um, registration ahead of time, like, you know, waiting list, and they will try it maybe to charge some money before. And then I will discover this problem couple of months back and i will have the time to kind of solve it so now i try to solve it so you know like if you don't have paypal and i'm really sorry like if my followers will listen to that so i'm really sorry about that i'm working on that looks i, I thought that i found the solution looks like i didn't so probably i will need to lawyer up and open a business in the united states so that's that's how it looks like now so it will take time to, to settle all that if you follow me, you know, if you want to check out my membership program, come over. If you want to learn about dependency injection, if you joined a new project and Dagger is your main pain point, I've just released a new course about Dagger, 10 plus hours of content. Like I will write, I will write about it more, but primarily if you just want, you know, to stay in touch and see what's, what I'm up to and also be notified about all kinds of news because I'm very involved in Android community and I try to share as much as I can. So just follow me on Twitter. Okay, perfect. By the way, just for your audience, how much time does it take you to prepare for a podcast? to record it to edit it
0: on a weekly basis how much do you invest so preparation is usually i would say like maximum one hour and part of that is because i approach people kind of knowing what i want to ask them and to like i do a bit of research because i want topics to touch on that are interesting but i also don't want to know the answer because then it's boring for me i'm asking your question i know what you're going to say and then i'm just waiting for the next question so it's not too much like maybe an hour some episodes might be like 10 minutes because I'll, I'll literally just look for the linkedin oh, okay they've done a bunch of interesting stuff i'm done i'll wait for the conversation editing is the longest part and that is usually dependent so like editing an hour and a half podcast is probably like i would say probably two days i think and that's like not solid two days but it's a good portion of a day doing that because it's like it's not like you listen to an hour and a half it's like you you listen and then there's a bit that you have to change or there's a click or there's some noise that has to be removed or this one the levels are not quite right so editing an hour and a half you probably end up listening stretched out to probably like 10 hours worth of audio before it's you know but also i find it fun which is why it's it's good because i think if i didn't find it fun i wouldn't i wouldn't do it but the bulk of it is editing the rest of it's easy like writing show notes takes 15 minutes that's basically it and then like i said i don't do a bunch of social media so that's 15 minutes of me just here's the link on twitter here's the link on linkedin done yeah
1: but it's fair to share to say that you put let's say Two full days. At least, yeah. Into, uh, yeah. So that's something that your listeners should appreciate because many people just, they just don't know how long these things take. And it's a major work. It's major effort. It's not
0: just like me and you sitting and chatting. It's you making a huge amount, investing huge amount of time. So thumbs up, right? But then you also, right, is you've given an hour and a half or an hour and 40 minutes right now of your day to something that you don't know how it's going to turn out and you're not getting paid to do it. And for all you know, like one person's going to listen to it. So it's like for both our parts, it's effort. But also it sounds crazy when you say it like that, which is at the end of this, we're going to have an hour and a half podcast episode that has no adverts. It's a 100% free. It it even costs me money to put it out because I have to pay for hosting and all that kind of stuff. And all of that is done for my enjoyment of creating it and hopefully people's enjoyment of listening to it.
1: Yes, but also Mm conveying information. You know, I think, I think what you, what you do is really important. In general, good podcasters, what they do is very important because people do seek for this information. I, I don't listen to podcasts without video because I find it very difficult to concentrate. So they have this problem. But uh, many people look for this information and thumbs up for you. It was really a pleasure to be there here and hopefully we'll do another one sometime.
0: Big thanks to today's guest Vasily Zukanov. You can find his courses on techyourchance.com. You can also find his membership program there. And you can find him on Twitter at Vasily You can also find him on YouTube slash techyourchance. As always, you can find everything we talked about in this episode in the show notes. If you like the show, tell a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. It's much appreciated. And if you really like the show, you can support it with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash coffee caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers you can do so in our slack channel and finally you can follow me on your favorite social media platform at low carb rob you can find all the links to everything i've just said in the show notes or at coffeeencodingpod.com. thank you for listening and i'll catch you on the next episode of the coffee encoding podcast